Merciful God, wonderful counselor, you sent your prophets to preach the message of repentance, calling your people to prepare the way for God's coming, to prepare for our salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to heed their warnings, to forsake our idols so that we might be prepared with joy for the coming of our Savior. And grant that we might also share in proclaiming that message, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Dear children of God, in one of Elie Wiesel's books, there's a wonderful yet troubling story of a man, a man in Europe during the Second World War. This man was a Jew living in a community that the Nazis invaded. He was very devoted to God, but also very eccentric. The day the Nazis invaded, the first time this man went into hiding. But when it was safe to do so, he came out of hiding, ran into the village, into the synagogue, and in the sanctuary he looked up at the ceiling and shouted, You see, God, we're still here. When the Germans began systematically rounding up Jews and placing them on trains, never to be seen again, the Jewish man remained in hiding. But when the danger passed, he would come out of hiding again, run into the synagogue, look up at the ceiling and shout, You see, God, we're still here. When the soldiers in trains came for the last time, this strange little man finds himself alone in his village, the last living Jew in town. One final time he came out, came out of hiding, walked into the synagogue, looked up at the ceiling and whispered, You see, God, I'm still here. And after a moment's pause, he said, But you, God, where are you? The first 39 chapters of Isaiah carry this same tone of despair. Where is God? Has he turned his back on his people? How can he remain silent while his people suffer so? But then when you come to chapter 40, the whole spirit of the book changes. The language begins to soar with hope and promise. God once again promises to take up the cause of Israel. He will once again come to the rescue of his people. Isaiah chapter 40 is where Handel's Messiah begins. After the prelude, the first words sung are, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is ended. Her warfare is accomplished. Israel has been divided and plundered. The people have been dragged away to Babylon as slaves. The temple has been toppled and the city lies in smoldering ruins.
And Isaiah reminds us that this is a result of the judgment of God on the sins of the people of Israel. This is the stuff as modern people that we would like to cut right out of our Bibles. The Old Testament, we are told, is full of mean and vindictive things. The God of the Old Testament is ugly. This is not the sort of deity worthy of our worship and praise. Judgment is not a popular idea. One of my favorite cartoons shows a minister waiting in the wings of the sanctuary, ready to enter the worship service. He's dressed in his robes and clutched in his hand is his sermon. The sermon title is clearly visible on hell and judgment. He has a devilish grin on his face as he's turning up the thermostat to about 98 degrees before he enters the sanctuary to preach this sermon. There's a sort of delight in his eyes, and it's that sort of delight in the concept of judgment that seems to be a thing of the past, thank God. But in its place, we've turned to a kind of syrupy, over-sentimental view of God, a God who simply doesn't care about sin. And yet in Scripture, we find God's grace and his judgment back-to-back. Justice and peace embrace. The God of judgment is the God of redemption, and judgment is often the prelude to salvation. In fact, our salvation can only come when God's judgment is taken on the shoulders of Christ himself. This is God taking his own judgment very seriously. God can promise salvation to the hearers of this word, to the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, because he knows that he will offer himself. He will offer his own son, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, will be offered up as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. In Scripture, God's grace is free, but it's never cheap. It comes at a high cost. This is why God can offer these words of comfort to his people. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak with tenderness to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has come to an end, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord Yahweh's hand double punishment for her sins. This is a Hebrew way of saying that her her payment for sins, her punishment has been sufficient. Enough is enough. Now it's time to speak words of comfort. But we have to ask, why the change? Why move from judgment to comfort? What is different? Well, according to the prophet, what is different is that God is sending a deliverer. He's going to bring his kingdom, and it will break into human history and establish itself once again as a rule of justice and peace in the world. And so the people are called to make ready for this kingdom breaking in. The voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight in the wilderness a highway for your God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground will be made level. The rugged places a plain. And then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed to all flesh. 
all flesh together, will see this accomplished, for the mouth of the Lord Yahweh has spoken. The only thing that will make a difference in the judgment, the only thing that will make a difference in the brokenness of the world, the only thing that will set things right again, is the arrival of God himself on the scene to set things right. And we know this message from Isaiah as the message of John the Baptist. He saw it as his job to take up the mantle of Isaiah, to declare the coming of Yahweh to Israel, to finally reveal God, finally revealing himself to comfort his people and bring them salvation from their sins. But this teaching, this use of John the Baptist, of the prophet Isaiah, is a stumbling block to many people. Because according to the Gospels, the way they treat this passage, this prophecy tells us that only Yahweh himself will fulfill this prophecy, that only Yahweh's coming will bring his rule into the world. And yet the Gospel writers insist that when Jesus comes, this prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, I occasionally hear Christians reflect on these Old Testament prophecies with wonderment, asking the question, how is it that the Jews don't see it? How is it that they don't see this prophecy fulfilled in Jesus? But we have to fully appreciate the character of the promise here. According to Jewish scripture, God's fulfillment of these promises will not happen through some human being. The kingdom of God will not be accomplished until God himself has returned to Zion. Look what the text says. In the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, for Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Then you can shout fearlessly to the towns of Judah, Look, here is your God. This is the expectation of Israel that God himself would establish his own rule over the world, that God alone would reveal his glory to the nations. And that's what makes this claim about Jesus all the more remarkable and difficult. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. No one expected that the wonderful counselor promised by the prophet Isaiah would be a flesh and blood human being. No one was waiting for the incarnation. This is the mystery of God revealed to us. And we can't lose sight of the fact, lose sight of the real wonder of this message, that Jesus Christ, that child of Bethlehem, is the full embodiment of the presence of God for the salvation of the whole world. This is the hope of Israel. Isaiah and John the Baptist agree that in order to receive this wonder that we need to be prepared, before this prophecy can be fulfilled completely, the people of God need to be made ready. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is part of that preparation. It's God's judgment being revealed. It is people being called to repentance. We need to be reminded of how desperate the situation has become before we can appreciate the solution we need to appreciate just how far the cancer has spread before we will, will submit to the hand of the, of the expert surgeon. When the people of God have finally come to a full sense of the depth of their sin and the desperation of their need, it is then that a path is being cleared for the coming of God. And so the purpose of the first 39 chapters 
of condemnation in Isaiah is not for God or his prophet to shake their fist at the people of Israel and say, I told you so, I told you this would happen. Unlike many preachers and many Christians, God doesn't revel in the fact of human sin. Instead, he sacrifices everything, even himself, in order to pursue us, in order to comfort us, in order to rescue us from our own self-destruction. God's promise is this, that he would come to rescue his people. And in the prophet Isaiah and in John the Baptist, he sends out a call for the people to be prepared for his coming. In the ancient world, when a king's entourage was coming into a city or a region, he would send messengers ahead, sometimes months in advance, to prepare the people for his coming. The roads would have to be repaired. Things would have to be painted and brightened up. Sometimes entire highways were built in anticipation of the arrival of the king. Any obstacle that might hinder the coming of the king would have to be removed. And Isaiah and John share this message again. We need to make the path smooth for the coming of God. We need to level the mountains. We need to fill in the valleys. We need to bring in the bulldozers to make a path suitable for the coming of God. So the character of this God who comes to us as mighty counselor depends upon our readiness to receive him, our preparedness for his coming. Usually when we think about the notion of comfort, we think about it in terms of being passive. For some, comfort, the ideal of comfort, is lying on the beach in the sun with a cold drink in hand. For others, it's sitting in front of a fireplace in a comfy chair with a good book. But the comfort that God offers is not like that. It requires hard work, activity. It requires an honest assessment of our need for preparation. We are not to make ready to receive the coming of God by being passive. We need to make ready by being active. The voice of God says, cry out. And the prophet says, what should I cry? This is what you should cry out. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the life of all people is like grass that withers and shrivels up, but the word of the Lord stands forever. What is God's message of comfort? Life is short, then you die. That's the message of comfort that's offered to us by Isaiah. Trying to extend your life will not bring you eternal life. Possessions will never make you happy. Lasting and meaningful comfort will never come through the possession of things because those things are passing away. Recognizing the fleeting nature of the things that we use to comfort ourselves is part of the way we prepare ourselves for the coming of God. And one of the signs that we're prepared for God's coming is that we've come to see the inadequacy of every other form of comfort. We've come to take to an appreciation of the limitations of things 
in, in their ability to make us comfortable, to make us secure, things that will wither and fade, things that will rust and decay. All of us are like grass, the prophet says. And the message of comfort comes to us, it becomes real to us only in proportion to our understanding that all other comforts are fleeting and transient. We need to be a people who are prepared for the coming of God by holding on loosely to these fleeting comforts and to prepare for the only for the comfort that only God can provide. I suspect that if our culture will be known for anything, it will be the pursuit of comfort and security. We spend huge chunks of our time lulling, lulling ourselves into a stupor with the media while much of the rest of the world faces the horrors of poverty and war motivated by our greed. We spend billions of dollars on plastic surgery trying to deny the fact that we're going to get old, we're going to die, while millions of children starve to death before they reach 13. As Christians, we cannot pretend to be prepared for the coming of God if we remain indifferent to the inequity and the injustice of the world. And yet we're very much like the culture around us in most ways. Bishop Leslie Newbigin tells the story of a young missionary who went to India some 50 years ago, found himself visiting a Hindu monastery. Within this monastery, he saw the, li- the halls were lined with pictures of Hindu deities, Hindu gods, and many other religious figures throughout history, including one of Jesus. Every Christmas, these Hindu monks would gather around the picture of Jesus for prayer and devotion. The young missionary realized that this was a perfect example of syncretism. Jesus had been neatly added to the 333 million gods that the Hindus already worshipped. He'd been neatly incorporated into Hindu religious practice. In fact, they saw no conflict in worshipping Jesus and worshipping these other gods. This young missionary was quite outraged and became critical of this syncretistic practice until he returned home. And he gradually began to realize the same thing about himself and his own culture. Somehow we Christians have just managed to add Jesus to the variety of modern gods our culture offers. Instead of Jesus entering our lives as mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wonderful Counselor, and radically rearranging, altering our lives by the standards of his gospel, it's been too easy for us to simply add Jesus to the pantheon of gods, the materialism and greed, the self-love and violence that our culture worships so. We don't mind the comfort that Jesus promises to bring in our lives so long as it doesn't disrupt the other forms of comfort that we've chosen. We We don't mind the salvation that Jesus offers to us, but we also want the salvation that status and affluence offers. We want security. We want the security that Jesus promises. But we want the unassailable security of nuclear weapons.
We have many gods that vie for our attention. And so it's no mistake that the prophet calls us to prepare a way for the Lord in the desert. Think about the desert from the standpoint of the whole biblical story. For the people of Israel, the word desert spoke volumes. It spoke of their utter desolation, their utter dependence upon God's provision. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, relying only on the hand of God for sustenance and comfort. This is what it means to be in the desert in biblical language. And so by calling us back into the desert to meet our God, Isaiah and John the Baptist are calling us back to that place of simplicity, to the simplicity of trust and dependence upon God alone, to a recognition that we're unable to provide security for ourselves, that we're unable to provide comfort for ourselves, and that we need to be emptied of those delusions before we can be prepared to meet our God. Pastor Fred Craddock tells the story of a little girl from one of his early churches in Tennessee. Her parents would send her to church, but they never came with her. They would pull up to the church's circular drive. The little girl would hop out of the car, Bible in arm, and the parents would go to breakfast. This couple was known for their lavish parties and sometimes wild parties. The father was an executive for a chemical company. He was upwardly mobile, ambitious, and irreligious. But every Sunday, there was their little girl sitting in church. One Sunday, Craddock says, he looked out across the congregation, and there was the little girl in her place, but her mom and dad were seated next to her. So after the service, the mom and dad came directly to the pastor and asked him, how can we become Christians? Craddock was curious. What prompted this? Well, last night we were hosting a party, the father said. There was a lot of drinking. Things got a bit loud and a little rough. It woke up our daughter. She came downstairs and was about on the third step. When she saw all the eating and drinking, she said, Can I say grace? So she stood there and prayed God's blessing on our dinner and said, Good night, everybody, and went back upstairs. Instantly, people began to say, It's getting late. We really must be going. Thanks for a great party. Within two minutes, the room was empty. As my wife and I stood in the empty house, he said, looking around at the half-empty glasses and crumpled napkins, my wife finally said, where do we think we're going? What do we think we're doing? At that moment, it became clear to both of us that something had to change. Isaiah and John the Baptist remind us that the comfort of God comes at a cost. We can't continue with business as usual and still think that we're prepared for the coming of God. Something has to change. The fact that we are Christians can be barely distinguished from the, from the culture around us, and that's seldom more evident than at this, this time of year. The other day, 
I heard a woman in line at a Christian bookstore say, well, things are tight, so we're only going to be able to spend $6,000 on Christmas this year. (laughs) This is a trap, you know. We all get in this trap of spending more and more trying to fabricate comfort, thinking that just one more fruitcake, just one more Chia Pet, and then we'll have a happy Christmas. I suppose you've heard the much-repeated story printed in Guidepost magazine some years ago about a certain nine-year-old boy named Wally Perling. Wally was big for his age, a bit of a slow learner, but he was a likable kid. They were doing a Christmas program in his school, which tells you how old this story is, and Wally wanted to be in it. He wanted to be a shepherd, but the teacher had another part for him in mind. She wanted him to be the innkeeper because he was so big. Wally took the part home and studied it, and he was ready. The night came for the play. Everything was going smoothly. And it came to the time when Mary and Joseph knocked on the door of the inn and Wally opened it and said, What do you want? Trying to sound grumpy. Joseph said, We need a place to stay for the night. My wife is pregnant. You've got to go and you've got to go somewhere else, he said. The inn is full. Are you sure? Joseph asked. We've come a long way and it's cold. No, there's no place here. Go somewhere else. But my wife is going to have a baby. Is there some corner that we could hide in? Perhaps the stable? At this point, there was silence. One of those embarrassing silences in a play when you know somebody's forgotten their lines. But Wally hadn't forgotten. He was musing. The prompter offstage whispered his line to him twice but he ignored the prompt. Caught up in the mood of the scene, Wally blurted out, you can have my room. I'll sleep in the stable. Of course, there were those who thought that the Christmas story was ruined that night, that Wally had messed it all up. But I think you know better. Wally got caught up in the story so much that the conventional response wouldn't do. He had enough purity in his heart to recognize that the coming of God into the world was something not to be missed, that it would require a completely different response than the response of others around us. When I started working on this sermon, I thought about it first as a challenge for us to leave our comfort zone, to follow God, in unconventional ways. But the more I consider the text, I think it's far more than that. God isn't merely asking us to leave our comfort zone so much as he's asking us to enter his comfort zone. God is calling us to make ready for his arrival by abandoning all those false forms of comfort that vie for our attention in order to embrace the only comfort that has eternal value. Folks, Advent is a time to bring out the bulldozers. 
a time to clear away the clutter of idols from our lives in order to prepare a smooth path for the coming Lord. And it's only as we are willing to eliminate that clutter, the clutter of false comfort and security, that we'll be able to receive the comfort that comes in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, the Lord Yahweh comes with power, like a shepherd feeding his flock, gathering the young lambs in his arms, holding them to his breast, and leading them to rest. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.